broadcasting from what appears to be a lightning storm in space. This is Politrex. The time the Declaration of Human Rights, the United Federation of Planets, the United Nations, World War II, the Dominion Federation War, the Art of War, the Teachings of Sirach, Jesus Christ, Welcome, everyone, to Politrex. We're a proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network. And here on Politrex, we look at the socio-political happenings of today in history through the episodes, movies, and philosophy of Star Trek. We are the red matter of all Star Trek podcasts. My name is Barry DeFord, and with me is my fantastic co-host, the often imitated and never replicated Mr. Shashankavaru. How are things in the Laurentian system, Shashank? I am young Spock's glued hands together because he really couldn't, you could tell he couldn't do the Vulcan salute. And when I watch the commentary on the movie, which is a hint for what we're going to talk about, J.J. Abrams says that he they had to glue Zachary Quinter's hands together. Uh, I mean, the fingers together so he could do the Vulcan salute. So it's a very fight love introduction of me when I say I am Spock's glued together Vulcan salute. But I'm great, my friend. How are you? And oh. also, namaste, homo sapiens. I was about to say something about that, but then I was like, you know what? Shashank Avaru is not our 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 dancing, you know, little dancing queen for money, right? He can he can do whatever he wants. If he doesn't want to start with namaste, homo sapiens, you know what? It's his show. He can do what he wants here. So uh, no, I'm glad you put that in at the end. But also, uh, you you do you. That, that was that was a good one. You are the the glue that holds uh, Spock's Vulcan hands together or fingers. Together. I will gladly dance for you, Barry Defer. Well, we have a we have an agreement, so you know. <laughs> My goodness! Well, if you folks uh, found that interchange uh, as uh, amazing as possible, you should tell us about what you thought about our um, our, our bromantic escapades and uh, chitter chatter. You can find us where, Mister Avaro. People can find us on Twitter. That is the best way to get in touch with us on at Polytrex. That's P O L I T R E K S. We also have a Facebook page. People can also get in touch with us through the Tricorder Transmissions website uh, that's the tricorder transmissions.com all one word no spaces no caps there is a handy dandy voicemail button on the website where you can just go and leave us a sweet voicemail and you know what no matter what it is if it's not profane we will play it on the show for you and that, that's three of the many many ways people can get in touch with us but those are the best ways they are the best ways i mean you could you could um i don't know shout real loud or something it's always fun kind of finding out when there's nearby podcast listeners and other podcasters uh dan gunther from literary treks on trek fm is in the same uh, same zone of uh, of settlement that i am so it's kind of nifty uh in that respect but uh anyways if you if you are um finding yourself to be really liking what you hear on the tricorder transmissions we boast i think we're we're coming up on cracking 400 episodes if not already passed you know you can listen to our supplemental logs there's reading trek drawing trek trek ranks trek profiles disco trek shore leave the original mission weekly trek sober trek and of course another trek show that uh, uh shashank you are uh, a star in actually that's right it should be dropping any minute here it's called faraday it's tricorder transmissions very own tabletop podcast and let me tell you the amount of fun i'm having on that show being the captain of the uss faraday with a bunch of hooligans it's like 
my dream to be on a Fast and Furious movie has finally come true because we are all such hooligans on that show. And the fact that we make any sense of it is as impressive as all the physics avoiding stunts that are made in those movies. It's just a blast, but I can't wait for people to listen to it. I can't resist the double messaging you just did for for the actual show we're going to be talking about 2009 trek you're the indian captain there's an indian captain in that and then you said fast and furious about star trek and some people maybe in a sort of pejorative way said that star trek 2009 was the fast and furious of star trek so uh Interesting. Good job. So if you'd like to hear any more of those red hot takes from either of us, you can support us on Patreon, um, where we do have some red hot takes that take place on uh, on our different reward levels and whatnot. There's some pretty awesome stuff there if you are so inclined. You know what else that you just said that had double layered meanings? You said red hot, red matter, Star Trek 2009. It's all connected. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're effortless here. Well, I think it's time we get on to the news. What do you say? Let's do it. Punch it. Welcome back to the news. It's not like there is anything exciting or really of interest happening in America because everything is so calm and chill out here in the West. So we're going to talk about some world news for a change. That was a joke. We know there's a lot going on, but... Every now and then, we'd like to take you out of things and show you a different perspective, talk about some other Trek-related world events that we can draw Star Trek similarities to and vice versa. So if people are familiar with accents, they'll know my accent is Indian because I am Indian and I'm from India. And we just had our election that finished. Actually, we're recording this on the night of May the 23rd, 2019, and the election finished on May the 23rd, Indian Standard Time. And because it is the largest democratic election in the world, uh, it the, the votes itself take a while to count. So actually, the, the technical counting just goes on for weeks because due to the lack of technology and a need for paper-based ballots in the country for many reasons, we just keep that election thing going. But... Uh, thanks to statistics and the way we do exit polls and the initial numbers, there is there is a good structure that is built around getting the election result within a couple of days of the actual elections finishing. And what Narendra Modi won with an even bigger majority. So Narendra Modi is our current prime minister. He's head of the BJP party, and he's often called... I do not personally think uh, rightly deserved as India's Trump. Well, the Bharatiya Janata Party or BJP is nationalistic in a way, but they don't do things like locking kids in cages or uh, trying to curb the freedom of speech of the country actively through legislative means or taking away rights as the Trump administration is doing. So there's a lot There is a lot to unpack there. And I think in certain respects, the Modi-Trump thing is earned, but in, in a lot of ways, I don't think it is. But so Narendra Modi won with an even bigger majority. And uh, he is the third Indian prime minister after Jawaharlal Nehru, who's our 
first prime minister and indira gandhi who's perhaps our most famous prime minister because she's india's first female prime minister to have won with over 300 seats which is a pretty big deal it's kind of like running a clean sweep of the electoral college in the american election terminology of it all i don't know i i hope i didn't throw too much at you barry what did you think of all this you know i i have to say that modi has been has been somewhat troubling in in my view but at the same time you know calling him the indian trump i don't I don't know. I, I hate I hate it when people compare people to other people in some cases and maybe some very uh, astute listeners will go back in to our catalog and accuse me of something that I did where I compared one person to another person. Well, maybe I'm in a different mood today. So so yeah. So I'm 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 more impressed with um with just sort of the way the vote worked and and kind of the way you were telling about the sort of the the historic context and everything. I, I think that also the fact that, yeah, I mean, there are billions of people in India and everyone is voting at once. That blows my mind. You know, like I'm excited that, um, that there was, you know, political engagement. I think Modi is, well, I guess he's not going to have to do as much, is he? Because he's got a, a larger, like he's got more power now, right? Right. And the fact that he has more power it could be taken either way. He could really delve into that nationalistic tendencies of the party but here's a fundamental difference trump pulled out of the paris climate agreement india under modi has actually pledged even more than china to bring down our carbon footprint under the climate agreement so there are some fundamental differences there he likes working with other countries to a certain extent he is he has that india first tendency but he also recognizes that you know we are all over the place and we need a global enterprise to work but going back to the election it's kind of like uh, it reminds me of the pilot uh, of deep space 9 because it, the 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 fact that every 4 years there is an enterprise uh, pardon my pun there is an enterprise in my country that manages to within a couple of months run an entire election for 1.1ish billion people that still blows my mind the the process itself is very fascinating and there is a good mix of electronic ballots and paper based ballots and there are certain rules that are fascinating for example in indian uh in in uh, in my constitution it dictates that if there is more than i want to say 6 or 7 or 8 people in a place there is a mandate for the government to provide them an a polling booth a place they can go and vote so if there are people living in a jungle as there often are there is a polling booth go, that is taken and set up in the middle of a forest so they can come and vote because it is dictated in the constitution that there needs to be a polling booth within certain kilometers of their houses so it's just it's very fascinating man and uh, like there there is a case covered every time an election happens and it's kind of like <laughs> cisco going into the wormholes and coming back because it it's it makes no sense when you think about it that for six or seven people they get 30 to 40 people together cops forest officers people who run the election together and they go set up a little booth in the middle of the forest and they say hey we are going to be protecting you from the tigers and the 
lions and the bears that try to come out and hunt you so you can come down and vote. But that's that's democracy for you. It's it's ambitious. It's an amazing undertaking. And uh, and yeah, I, I mean, again, I uh, I definitely have sympathies for a lot of the struggles that are taking place in Kerala, and my heart goes out to the people struggling through the Naxalite movement. I I, I just hope that uh, that the the differing groups within India are able to actualize and keep their voices loud. Is that a good way of putting it? Absolutely. And if this is worth anything, you would be delighted to know that BJP did not win a majority in Kerala. And it's still the same party that used to rule them before, which is not as much BJP as you'd think. So if if you want to, again, put it in Western election terms, if you think about how, you know, Trump is the president and Republicans are running the government, but... The state legislation of California still is pretty protected because all their state representatives and their congressmen and senators are democratic. It's kind of like that. If BJP doesn't win a state majority, even though it still has a federal majority, places like Kerala, which are not Hindu majority, the the majority there is Christian, uh, and they tend to sway a different way from obviously the Hindu Nationalist Party. (laughs) Uh, Kerala did not go under that BJP umbrella. So that's going to be an outlier, uh, as usual. Well, also a quick shout out to uh, uh, Jamie McGregor. There was also a Australian election would have been on the uh, the 18th of May that that took place. And there looks to be a majority that went to the Liberal National Party. They're a, a right wing party. Uh, so I would I would sort of wager kind of on the, the conservative end of things from the sounds of things. And um, yeah, so there's going to be some some new people uh, in charge down there. And I think we should have uh, Jamie on again to talk to us about what he thinks. Uh, I think that would be kind of neat. So Jamie, if you're listening, I remember you talking about the election and I would love to hear you talk about it to us. Anyways. I am surprised that they actually have elections. I always thought it was just you. Every party had a representative that put a piece of paper uh, with the name of the party written in the pocket of a kangaroo. And then the kangaroos just ran and whichever hit the finish line first, they won the election. Um. You're close. Uh, I just, I just thought democracy had crumbled completely, and they lived in a world where they chased each other's, uh, each other in a desert, uh, in like tricked out cars with spikes and explosives, and they spray paint their teeth uh, silver. Uh, and they all went to the Thunderdome where they just fought it out. Yeah, yeah, and that's how it happened. But uh, you know what? You you learn something new every day. When uh, Canada has its federal election in November, I expect you and Jamie to make fun of us. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's uh, it's good. It's good. It's I apologize good. to our Australian <laughs> listeners. I am sorry. I'm such a goofball. No, it's okay. Oh, did we want to talk about the delightful fan message we got from a wonderful listener? Absolutely. So this is something that uh, that dropped into our uh, inbox just a little while ago, and uh, you know, I really, really have to say this. This made my. Uh, this made my day. Uh, we had a listener. His name is uh, Dayan Beitch. He sent us this message, which I'm now going to read to you all. Uh, here it is. It says, uh, hey, both of you, I love your podcast and have been an avid listener since I first found out about your show through your collaboration with Revolutionary Left Radio on, on the episode Methods Devour Themselves, Science Fiction and Political Philosophy. 
I really cannot tell you how much I deeply appreciate your anti-imperialist discussion on Politrex, such as anti-coup regime change plots against Venezuela, when those people, like me, constantly against this warmongering were feeling very alone. I would like to see many more collaboration and panel episodes involving Revolutionary Left Radio, Women at Warp, Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast, talking to advocates, social critics, anthropologists, etc. about your culture of Trek, gender, racism, oppression, etc. It would be awesome to talk to the authors of Octavia Brood's left science fiction, visionary speculative fiction, and some others that have already been interviewed, for instance, on Strange New Worlds, who are about anthropologists, etc. And other similar podcasts slash people to talk a lot more about questions such as, is Starfleet an empire? Is Starfleet imperialistic? Outside of Starfleet, what are the lives, classes, etc. of regular people throughout the universe? Comparisons of Section 31 to the CIA, KGB, etc. American politics in this post-DS9 discovery, the politics of Star Trek discovery, and if and how it is being made by a conservative CBS affected, it's drastically increased, for me anyway, some other critics, its warmongering and darkness throughout the series compared to most previous Star Trek. Uh, the series at least. Um, just a quick aside, uh, Day, and you'll be very excited because that might just be coming right down the pipe soon. Uh, the politics of deuterium, so many more political left revolutionary crossover, and looking at science fiction, speculative fiction, such as Star Trek, for its visionary potential. Good luck and solidarity. Thank you again to both of you so much for all that you do. So, uh, Day, and thank you very much for the heartfelt message, and uh, definitely solidarity uh, heading your way as well. And I appreciate uh, any of the folks who uh, came over from the Rev Left area, and I hope anyone who listens to us gave Brett and his show a sh- uh, shot as well. So, um, yeah, Shashank, this is actually, I think, the first time you've read the whole thing, because uh, I, I, I do most of the Facebooking stuff. So what did you think? I think, one, it is very flattering, and I appreciate Dan so much. It means the world to me, and I know Barry. I don't mean to speak for you, but when people tell us how much they enjoy something like this, my head always goes back to <laughs> November 2017 when you and I are Skyping or at that time I was naive enough to be on Facebook and we were Facebooking and we were talking about how we should just talk about politics and see if that would make sense as a show in Star Trek. And you already had a name picked out and we the whole time we were just wondering, will at least one person listen? It, w- it would be cool if 10 people listened to this show. And it's weird that we now have people who write to us to take the time out to to write and say, hey, uh, we are, we're enjoying what you're doing down there. So uh, very flattering means means the world to me. And also, you know, it's it's great that we can bring in people from all viewpoints. I think in that way, not that I'm comparing myself to Starfleet, but in, in a way, we are like Starfleet when we run a show like this. I think all podcasts that try to do something different with their edge or their perspective of of star trek like a lot of shows here on track order like queer track for example the fact that they're able to bring in such a fresh unique perspective and bring in all these people and that we are able to coexist when i did that rev left collaboration i'm sure if you go back and listen you'll see me say multiple times i have zero knowledge or expertise on communism or the things that you guys are so passionate about and the political leanings that you have but just by being a listener i was able to be a part of such a large conversation and my my world opened up to 
new perspectives and new viewpoints. And that's what Star Trek is all about to me. So thanks for joining us, Dayan. And we hope to keep you entertained with all kinds of Spice King references and uh, funny jokes while Barry brings in the, the intelligent conversation. Well, I, I think you bring very much of your own as well, sir. But uh, yeah, thanks again, Dan. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch. I think, uh, I think that's wonderful that you uh, took the time to talk to us. So the last bit of news, and this one I guess might be somewhat self-serving on my end, um, is uh, the new Picard trailer just came out. And it is, it is equal parts exciting and and sort of ominous about sort of what we're going to be seeing and it also looks like an amazing like vacation video for a winery in the 24th century that i i honestly do not yet know what to think about it because it's kind of a i want to say it's a one minute video and it's mostly close-up shots of a person working in a farm, Chateau Picard, and you get to see his uh, wine bottles. And then it really, for those of you who haven't seen the trailer, it's basically that. It's just a cross-section of of shots of someone working in a winery, uh, or rather a farm that is growing all the grapes for this winery. We presume it's Picard. We don't know who it is. But there is a voiceover talking about how Picard has led the largest armada in the history of Starfleet. Again, this is an assumption on my part. I think that's during the destruction of Romulus. Yeah. And he's he's trying to protect our people. And then it ends with uh, the, the voiceover who's kind of, questioning or investigating Picard in some way because he's sitting in a we see only his face and we see two lights behind him and he's he's looking very ominous very uh, wary and also almost like he's carrying this weight on himself on on what on what he's about to talk about but the voiceover asks him uh, tell me Admiral why did you leave Starfleet and you know and then it pans over to his face and it just holds on his face and then we see the the name card so uh, there is just so much going on there and it's all good i i'm very very excited to see the show but at this point i just it is kind of exciting that they're actually going to give us a scenario in which starfleet has not worked out and they're going to dare us to say hey you know this organization that stresses optimism and hope we're going to show you its dark side and you're going to deal with it I feel like DS9 and Discovery has definitely done that as well. But no, I know what you mean. You know what I think? I personally think that the voiceover lady, that's a Tal Shiar. I'm guessing that is my uh, my guess is she is this is going to take place in Romulan space t- to a a fair degree and uh, it's going to be very much more of a psychological um, you know, self-discovery sort of look into the mind of a man tortured by tortured by his own legend, I think in some cases. And, and yeah, I'm just super excited. They're going to, I don't know. I think, you know, when they, when they saw Kirk out in generations, I feel like they could have done a lot more with it. And I'm sure William Shatner would have taken hours of more screen time if offered. So I'm really looking forward and I'm thinking about the beginnings of the, of you talked about the beginnings of the podcast and with you and I sitting together last year, when, uh, Sir Pat Stewart came out and said Picard is coming back and I remember you and I just like jumped into the air and like hugged each other and yeah we were we were pretty excited and so to see it this far now it's going to be pretty cool just hear me out it is the Tal Shiar 
or 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 it's just a really nosy customer who's trying to buy a bunch of wine bottles from him and Picard is just mad that she's going into all kinds of questions that she's not supposed to be asking him. No, oh, no, you're actually right. That's yeah, no, it's not a tell she It's 100% a lady just just buying wine and trying to make very very uh, casual conversation, right? Absolutely. So uh, either way, I'll be excited. No matter uh, which way it goes, it'll just be a trip <laughs> to see Picard come back. So yeah. I'm all kinds of excited, man. Count me in for this. I'm in the bag. Same here. Well, I think with that, let us get on to the main topic. main topic. So today is a really cool conversation because 2009 Trek does does mean a lot to me and it has its controversies and we will talk about that. It has its inconsistencies, its plot holes, it has its ups, its downs and I'll be honest, I can quote basically the entire movie from back to front because I've watched it. I would say it's the second most watched movie I have ever watched and the number one movie I've ever watched is Ninja Turtles the movie the original the first one from the early 1990s so I think when you waltz in with us here there are some of you who maybe started your Trek journey with 2009 Trek and maybe there are some of you who were waiting and maybe were disappointed by 2009 Trek. We want to kind of look through all of the different bits. There have been a lot of people who've spoken about the Kelvinverse. I feel like that sort of ire that has come with a lot of the new Trek has really diverted itself to Discovery, and the Kelvinverse has sort of dissipated into ignominity with everyone else, and I probably didn't pronounce that right, but you know what I mean. It's it's not really front and center, and it probably has a lot to do with the fact that the entire series is pretty much put on ice at this point because of different contractual obligations and some uh, disputes about wages and whatnot. So, Bear with us on this conversation, because I think we're going to try to cover as much as we possibly can. And I think the first thing we should start with is sort of our stories with 2009 Trek, because as far as I know, Shashank, this is also a pretty meaningful movie for you as well. Oh, meaningful doesn't even begin to describe the importance this movie has for me. It basically kickstarted my love for Trek. I kind of remember watching episodes of Trek as a kid when my mom and dad used to watch it. It used to we used to get Indian versions. So when I say Indian versions, I mean even if somebody you know yells out what really isn't a profane word, but kind of feels angry and mean, they'd probably cut that out. So I really saw forty or thirty-five minute versions of an hour-long episode of Star Trek: The Original Series and and TNG. We really never got DS9, so I just remember watching those as a kid in the late 90s and early 2000s. But it kind of faded away because my parents also stopped watching it until it was 2009. And I'm going to admit this: I have not admitted it, but it's 10 years past now. So I think the statute of limitations has passed. And I read that. Star Trek 2009 had come out and people are loving this movie and it was making a boatload of money, but they didn't actually release it in theaters. So I naturally did what any curious 17-year-old who was really desperate to watch a movie would do. I got a bootleg copy. So that is where my story with (laughs) Star Trek restarts is me getting this bootleg copy and then 
kind of take stealing it away. It's like it was kind of holding that bootleg copy was kind of like holding a physics book during a church session. You know, you're kind of secretly trying to hide it. You know, not everybody thinks it's really cool anymore or they don't even know what it is because it. I don't think it ever got a huge release in India. So I just hid it away from the rest of the world, bought it home, sat down, put it in my computer. And for the next two something hours, I instantly was transported into all these discombobulated memories that I had as a kid of watching mom and dad watch Star Trek and sitting next to them and trying to figure out what these things meant and now actually learning the meaning of, oh, that's a starship. Oh, that's Captain Kirk. Oh, that's Spock. So in a weird way, I kind of knew Chris Pine, Kirk, and Zachary Quinto, Spock, and Carl Urban, Dr. McCoy, before I really came into view and understood what the, uh, now I know as the prime verse of characters and cast are and what the differences are between them. So I might not be exaggerating when I say watching that movie for the first time in that bootleg copy, all to myself, uh, hidden away from the world, uh, those two-ish hours, I still think are some of the closest uh, movie experiences I'd had that I would describe as religious because I kind of was realizing, oh, this is beautiful and I'm falling in love with this. And it is it is giving me so much to think about and base my life around. And that that just, yeah, it started 2009. Uh, it, was, it was like prayer when I watched it the first time. That's quite, what about you, Barry? That is quite the love story, and there's there's really no way I can top that. So, yeah, for me, I just hadn't done much with the franchise since it was basically cancelled after Enterprise had come to an end. And I had a pretty sour taste in my mouth because I really felt like Enterprise was just catching its stride. And it, you know, I mean, I was going through a bit of a Star Wars kick as well, and, and, and that kind of kind of came and went pretty fast. But... Uh, when I had heard that 2009 Trek was coming, it, it really did sort of raise an eyebrow where I was like, oh, here we go, another sort of reboot and all this sort of stuff. So I actually was kind of walking in going, eh, not too sure. So when the movie finally did come out, I went with a dear friend of mine uh, named Kevin, who was also sort of a lapsed Trek fan. He he spoke about how he would watch The Next Generation quite a bit as well. And so he and I went to the theater, and I just remember being picked up and taken on like a just this wild ride, right? Like it, you you don't really get much of a rest it really does feel like riding a roller coaster so kevin and i definitely talked about it a lot and it was at this point that i started seeking out old trek right starting of course with tng and ds9 and and sort of sharing that and it's amazing how basically like all of the trek stuff that i have always encountered it always just sort of seems like Trek breeds friendships because Kevin and I had already made quite a strong and, and meaningful friendship, but it, it did increase things. It did sort of move things in kind of a neat, neat kind of direction in that sense. So after I sort of, delved in more to Star Trek, I ended up moving to the United Kingdom shortly after, and I ended up alone a lot. And when I was feeling down or just riding the train to visit friends in other parts of the country, I would always get a viewing in. You know, if I, if I knew I was on the train for more than two hours, boom, I can get this movie in. And so I'd bring my laptop or my phone and I would watch it. And I just had this compulsion to watch it too, right? For what it's worth, 
it really just spoke to me. And once it became available on, uh, once the rest of Trek became available on Netflix, I began sort of a new era of Trek fandom, one that you know obviously led me to this place here. So, is it the best movie? I would say no. Actually, my favorite Trek movie is probably The Wrath of Khan, followed by um, First Contact. But you know, I think coming forward here, I'll get into why. But 2009 Trek definitely it just caught me at the right time, and it got me into a headspace that helped me a lot. It because I base so much of Star Trek on my friendships that uh, when I'm away from friends or when friends are away from me, I can use Star Trek to kind of fill that void. And, and am I saying that the, the characters on the bridge of the Enterprise are all my friends? Well, I think they're all your friends too, dear listener. So, yeah. So that, that, that's my end of things. Hey, that, I, I was pretty impressed and moved by that story. I appreciate you sharing that with me. I kind of knew parts of it, but I'm glad now I and our listeners have a full picture of your connection to Star Trek 2009. You know, speaking of favorites, I'll say this for Star Trek 2009. It's definitely the most, at once, it's it's the, it's the one of the most successful Star Trek movies and also one of the most non-Star Trek or Star Trek movies, if you get my rhythm, because the movie has things like Beastie Boy Sabotage playing <laughs> uh, a bunch of times. And then it has things like Kirk sitting and eating an apple and making fun of people and shooting handguns with his fingers, finger guns. And it also has this really cool time travel story in the middle of everything that's going on. Like there are a lot of things that happen in that movie that you don't think of as really Star Trek-y stuff, but you also would be an idiot if you think, oh, because it wasn't kind of the Trek I knew, it wasn't really a successful Star Trek movie because I, I think it's the most successful Star Trek movie in terms of the money it made and the social impact it had. And weirdly, I don't think if J.J. Abrams had made Star Trek, he would have gotten the Star Wars gig. So the fact that those exist in whatever capacity they do really happened because of 2009's uh, Star Trek. But yeah, the, that movie, man, it's it's so instrumental and there's so much in that movie. Uh, I can't wait to just unpack everything with you. Well, let's dive right in. So I think the first piece of it is maybe a bit of the J.J. Abrams end of things. Of course, uh, when young Kirk is being called, it's uh, one of J.J. Abrams' friends who's in all of his movies and he plays, I guess, Jim Kirk's uh, stepdad or something and he calls him on the, on the Nokia on the Nokia display on the, the Ford Mustang that he's stolen. And um, I guess like that part for me was probably my least favorite scene in a lot of ways, because it tries to depict earth in a strange way that again, is just sort of like a simulacra of modern days. Like I don't really feel like Star Trek society, right? United Federation of Planets society would see any of those things taking place. First of all, there are no companies left they don't live in a world where companies are relevant. So maybe that's just like an add on to the car that was added on in the last 300 years or something like that. Um, I don't know the whole scene with then like the weird robo cop, not cop police officer, peace officer, whatever the heck that thing was talking to him and referring to him as citizen over and over again. I guess like, again, I was like, what, what is trying to be conveyed about earth at that period of time? Because like, Often when you look at, at Earth 
in the United Federation of Planets, even even in, in earlier iterations, but I think mostly myself for like TNG and DS9, or even Enterprise, I, I mean, it's a pretty chill place, and everyone seems pretty happy, and I feel like a lot of those ills that Kirk would have went through would have probably been dealt with. So, to be honest, I, I sort of balk immediately on the social daddy issues that Kirk has throughout. There's sort of a, a perpetual search he goes on. And maybe I want to stop to let you kind of unpack some of what I've said, Shashank, before I go on to more. But um, I don't know. Um, have, have you thought about that before at all? Or, or am I kind of on my own on this one? Uh, no, I, I mean, I probably like that scene more than you do. But so in preparation for this, I am lucky enough to have the Blu-ray for Star Trek. Uh, and I got to watch it with director's commentary and the voice of that biker who stops the biker cop who stops young Kirk is actually JJ Abrams. So, uh, <laughs> really? is, yeah, is JJ Abrams voice modulated and they apparently originally had somebody do it and they had, that person had face alien makeup, but they put a mask on him. So, uh, it would be more mysterious and he would actually look a little more scary and would be a little more fascistic. And it's weird that we were making a Mad Max reference earlier, but I think that that is the most Mad Max thing in Star Trek. You know, when you think about it in in this movie, uh, it's uh, a a kid uh, being chased down an almost desert-like atmosphere that they call Iowa, and right it, it, by a by a speeding space biker cop who's hovering over the ground. And uh, there's rock music playing on his radio. And uh, no, it's interesting that you also bring up the the father figure part, because this is really where we see Kirk's first attempt at trying to connect with the father, because his stepfather comes or presumably whoever that guy is. I want to say it's a stepfather or his foster father or somebody who adopted him in some way and had to live with this kid who stole the car and that guy comes over and he's like, you're not going to take that car. That car is mine. And Kirk immediately shuts him off. You kind of get a lot of Kirk's personality in that scene. And, you know, I, I know you and I as huge Star Trek fans and the Trek we know that really doesn't come into view. But uh, if, if I were to show that movie to a friend, somebody who had no idea what Star Trek was, that's a scene they would really enjoy because it's very much in keeping with the action movies of the time. You know, people speeding on cars toward near impossible situations that they really cannot get out of, hint, hint, fast and furious. And then the movie slows down and a character jumps out of a car as the car falls off a cliff. That's just, that's why I think it's, uh, it rides that line of being a really non-Star Trek movie and a successful one because there is something that he, that we don't immediately relate to, but that's probably something that people went back to the movies to watch this because they're like, oh, that's a cool way to do that. And and that's an interesting way to look at it. I agree. And 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 yeah, I mean, my, my complaint really does come from like the crusty Star Trek fan who's like, that's not the way it would be done. And you're right. I mean, they don't have us in mind. And I think that actually um, Greg uh, Rozier on uh, on twitter he actually did an amazing he, he tweeted an amazing amazing article that you know basically stated like fandom doesn't owe you any or like the the people who make you the shows you like don't owe you anything they, they're giving you their art and if you don't like their art 
then you don't have to consume it. Like, don't, uh, there is sort of like a, I want to speak to the manager culture starting to really become louder and louder in the in the fandom world right across the board and so yeah i mean if i bring up any con- anything that i think is a contrivance or anything like that definitely that does sort of lump me into that group of people who are just angry and they want to see what what they're used to but i would say like more in this case it's a continuity issue with with the deeper understanding of Star Trek, but you're right, Shashank, no, no, no casual watcher of any, any movie is going to bat an eye. I mean, I went and, and watched Avengers Endgame, and, um, it was fun. There was a lot of things that happened, but I have not been keeping up with that series. So I kind of jumped. I, I think I watched, uh, the first one and then I watched some of civil war. And then now I've watched Endgame, and, um, yeah, I missed a lot. A lot happened, and uh, and I'm still kind of confused. But I enjoyed it. So, you know, you're absolutely right there. If you don't mind, uh, I would really like to talk about the actual beginning, beginning of the movie with the USS Kelvin and uh, just unpack that a little bit because I think it is one of the coolest openings to uh, to any movie. And it's like another J.J. Abrams movie that I was watching, weirdly enough, I was watching that today because I love it so much, uh, Mission Impossible 3, that which begins with Ethan Hunt in a chair, tied with a gun uh, being pointed to his wife's head by the big bad guy who's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And he, Ethan Hunt, is begging for... His his wife's life. He's saying, "You can kill me, but please leave her." And then it cuts to like the Mission Impossible entrance. When you think about the evolution of J.J. Abrams as a director, he's really a fan of throwing you in the middle of action and then you figuring it out. So what happens with USS Kelvin is just really some of that. It's some of the best Star Trek stuff, man, uh, because there is so much valor at a time of war that is being shown by everybody and yet you really cannot you cannot find one perfect bad guy in that situation because if you take the Nero perspective when he brings out his ship and he's out there trying to search for Spock uh, he is a traveler from a he's a holocaust survivor there is no other way of putting that. It's an unintentional Holocaust because of what happened with the destruction of Romulus. But it's a guy trying to stop. You know, there is a that the really cool scene where he and Pike are talking. And he says, like, I saw it happen. I watched it happen. And when he's yelling that, you really feel it. So and that's the guy killing the guy who just to protect his ship gave up his captaincy, made a, a young first officer a captain left a ship just to come by and talk to this guy and now he's he's scared uh, because of trying to protect his people <sighs> there is so much happening in that in that sequence so there is that story right and that's just a movie in itself when you think about one person trying to shave their ship and fighting a, a holocaust survivor bad guy that's just a movie on its own if if you just think about it really and yeah. you you compartmentalize that and then you put the story of uh, of Kirk 
who's uh, again kirk is played by this new guy named chris hallsworth him him something yeah yeah and we nobody knows so where that guy went some big but, actor yeah yeah uh, it's like who, who cares who that guy is <laughs> uh, and so chris hemsworth plays uh, the first officer kirk that we know and then there is jennifer morrison's character who's kirk's mother uh, who's pregnant and the story then immediately within seconds becomes the story of a young uh, a young first officer in the middle of war saving his people by giving up his life uh, diving face first into that giant spaceship so all his people can fly away including his pregnant mother which again is a very superman like story it's uh, that it's our hopes and dreams travel with you young kalel scene from uh, the richard donner superman movie it's uh, a person reaching the end of their life on at a at a very untimely situation and they're letting go of these people that they love so so th- th- there is just so many so many things happening but they're all acts of valor there is the pregnant mother who's now realizing slowly that she has to raise a kid who's born in the middle of space war uh, there is the father who had just given his life to save his entire ship there is the captain who had to give up his life to save his ship and had to make the choice of making a young kid a first officer and then there is the holocaust survivor who's a time traveler who's convinced that what is here to protect his people from has actually happened even though it hasn't really happened so that there is i'm sorry i might have said a bunch of words about that scene so i'm going to let you talk about that but lots of things to unpack you know i think that is the it's jj abrams look at the kobayashi maru right he 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 puts all of these people into impossible situations and then boom, you're right. We're thrust right in. We have no, we have no chance to, to do anything, but, but just sit and watch. And that, the, the, the scariness of it and this whole introduction of basically the entire premise of the movie here is, is given to us in, it's, it's like a shotgun blast and yeah, it, it is a riveting piece of, of cinema and the, the, the effects are great. The acting is fantastic. I really do love the interplay between, between the Kirks, right. As they are saying goodbye to each other. And that of course is the premise of the next piece where they've got to, you know, explode young, young uh, James Kirk, through um, through the whole car scene that we just spoke about as well, but you're absolutely right. Just the the magnitude of of this scene is very quintessentially JJ. But maybe kind of tying that that in further is also all of that emotion, all of that feeling you get right when when the mum is screaming to stop, you know, and no, no, please, we can't uh, we can't leave without my husband, kind of thing. And then they're talking to each other. This gives a lot of weight and emphasis to the daddy issues that Kirk has coming forward, right? It, he has a very violent birth and his, his violent birth is, is tantamount to his, the violent behavior he gets at the bar afterward. And then throughout the entire movie, he's getting choked and choke slammed and lifted from his neck and then choked again. Like, I don't know what's up with Chris Pine's neck, but uh, that thing can take a licking and keep on ticking. I tell you. And, 
with that as well, Kirk's swagger is is diminished to a degree, but you're also right in the sense that Kirk still has his finger guns and, and he still pulls a little bit of, of the Shatner. The, the you call us a favor uh, when he's talking to McCoy and they're having their interchange was very, very Shatner. And I enjoyed that as well. So again, I've maybe thrown a lot back at you on a completely different piece of it. But I think the best part about this movie is it strings itself along so well. And the genius of the movie, you take this thing that just happened where a kid lost his father ever before being born. And then you cut it to the story of a kid who has parents that are so vastly different and he's struggling to connect to both these people on such uh, basic emotional levels because he doesn't know where his identity is. Uh, And of course, when we get to that uh, Spock scene. It is so at once. It's funny and it's, it's tragic because we all have been around, or if we are not so lucky, we've been those kids who've been bullied in school and uh, have been around people who've been bullied when they're at such a young age. And uh, it's also funny because when the new when the kids come and Spock has just finished his lesson for the day, uh, he, without even looking, he says, I assume you've prepared new insult for me. And they say, affirmative. <laughs> like, that's a, that's just a thing they do. It's so delightfully Vulcan, right? The, the whole, we are now about to abuse you. I understand. Uh, yeah, there, there is sort of the, the, the really alien alienifies them in a in a delightful way. The the whole Spock stuff that happens from when we see him as a kid to then we see him as a young adult and then an adult. You see, you see one person who's clearly going one way in their life because whatever connection he had to his parents is slowly dissipating and he cannot find a father figure to latch on to. And then you see another kid who has parents that are very powerful, clearly people of power and wealth and success. And yet he's struggling because he doesn't know which side of the universe he belongs to. And it kind of defines these characters. One of them is searching for a father. One of them is searching for himself. And that kind of becomes the movie and everything else just happens around them. And at the end of the movie, you see that Spock, uh, I'm sorry, Pike finds a, uh, sorry, uh, you see at the end of the movie that Kirk finds a father in Pike and Spock literally and metaphorically finds himself and he he learns what it is within him and what he's destined for. It's just the the just I just saying that gave me goosebumps, man. That's how much I love this movie. Well, maybe also I was wondering because Spock does lash out quite a bit on the Enterprise and stuff, and I wonder perhaps um, maybe just the 2009 Trek took place when which when Ponfar would have been happening. I, I just wonder, maybe that's why he's so aggressive. But uh, all jokes aside, you're right, he is searching for himself. And I find very interesting, you know, the loss of Amanda is, it, it shows him it, that without the human in his life, it's very difficult for Spock to to control his human side. Whereas in the original series, obviously Amanda is a lot more 
a lot more communicative with her son, and Sarek is not as much. And in this case, it almost forces Spock and Sarek's relationship to continue existing, and yet Spock still feels like a piece is missing. And in this case, it's almost inverted, right? The the human side of Spock is something he's going to have to find his own way with, much like in the original series and as it's depicted throughout the movies, Spock very much finds his Vulcan side himself. He sort of chooses how Vulcan he wants to be. And I mean, you still see that when he chooses to join uh, Starfleet instead of the Vulcan Science Academy due to that racist slight. But again, yeah, we've got we've got a lot of searching. There's a lot of the hero quest in this. And I think there is also a lot of searching that Nero does. And he is sort of again, the, 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 the third piece of this triad, right? Obviously, you said he is a, a survivor of, of, a, of a natural holocaust, right? He, he has post-traumatic stress disorder and a psychosis going on, right? Like, he needs medical attention more than anything. And, you know, we get to see a Romulan's and a Vulcan's reaction to the destruction of their own world and how they act. So it's an interesting dichotomy as well between Nero and Spock in that respect. Obviously, Nero's response by destroying Vulcan is 100% unreasonable, but the whole thing feels like a sustained crime of passion almost, right? You, As you said, you know, you could do a whole movie about that first piece about these two captains encountering each other through through time and stuff like that. But from Nero's perspective, I don't think the destruction of any planet or the destruction of any one is, is morally justifiable in a lot of cases, but that's how crime of passion works right you you get so angry in that moment that you become so incredibly violent and i mean of course given the advanced nature of his ship he has the means to do it so i do think that a lot of work went into the construction of these characters and i appreciate it i agree with everything you just said uh and just thinking in terms of the movies uh if you take a single character as a villain, I think Nero is the most successful movie villain since Khan from The Wrath of Khan because, uh, there are, yes, the Borg in First Contact, they're pretty convincing, but, uh, and and I'm sure everybody has their picks, but if you, if you just think, yeah. yeah, if you just think about it, at least to me, in my opinion, I think Nero is one of the most successful because you kind of, this is weird, but you kind of understand where he's coming from. Uh, like, imagine you lose your entire planet and then the guy who caused it has escaped and then you find out there is a way to actually find this guy and hold him accountable. I kind of empathize and uh, honestly relate to somebody saying, hey, let me get this crew together and the last of us will go and try to find this guy and teach him a lesson. I can understand that. And it's difficult when you when you go through something like that and uh, it's it's just uh, the the movie now see, see we from 2 minutes ago when we were talking about fathers and father figures and family now we're talking about two holocaust uh, survivors two planetary planetary genocide survivors trying to find their way around the rest of the planet as a story so yeah star trek 2009 man it's a good movie I think they did something right. Absolutely, they they did something right. And I think it has a lot to do with their use of emotion, right? I, I would say to a lot of cases, 2009 Trek is a defibrillator panel to the body that was Star Trek 
itself. Its pace is easily the highest of any other films. And I mean, it's not the first time this argument has been made. Um, I think, you know, other groups have said this. It's a marketability choice in the, you know, in the, and in the world of remakes, it is, you know, used to grab profit because that's the world we live in. But I also think it was tactfully chosen to be as recognizable as possible with nods that we as Trek fans would enjoy anyways, right? If they made a movie for you and me, Shashank, it would not have remotely looked like that. But even if every Trek fan showed up to that film and it didn't appeal to the rest of the population, it would have still failed, right? We, we have to understand that as a Trek community, we're great and we're strong and we're having fun. But, um, you know... If we all jumped at the same time, it wouldn't really record anywhere on seismic activity. Right? We're not we're not that that big. So if you don't like the way Trek looks, that has more to do with what you probably don't like about the movie and television industry, and than what is being chosen with Trek these days. So, you know, you saying this is a good movie, I fully agree. Do I dis do I like or dislike it overall? I would say that it channeled my feelings when I needed them, and the high emotional stakes within this movie are what make me come back. Anyways, what I'm basically trying to say is 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 like Star Trek is so wonderful and and great. Of course I don't like elements of this movie, but it doesn't mean that I don't like the movie overall. So my understanding of other fan fandoms is not strong, but from others I have spoken to and something I personally assert in, in the, my biased idea is that Trek is a different fandom from others because it looks from an objectively positive place. And so I think that's the underlying feel I get from the Kelvinverse still. It comes from that objectively positive place. I would say Discovery challenged that to a degree, and and that's an interesting way to look at it. But looking at other fandoms uh, that are happening at the same time as modern Trek, we've got The Walking Dead, we've got Hunger Games, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, all of the Batman stuff, sort of DC and Marvel. They, they It sort of seems like the, the feel of a lot of those shows is a lot less objectively positive. And that's why I always appreciate that track moving through every single fan franchise. So I think that's kind of where I, I take this this movie is, is, is it relies heavily on emotion, which is going to make you have to sit in your seat a little bit differently. It, Like you said, if we had just one of our random friends watch the movie, they'd probably enjoy it for its action and cool sequences and stuff like that. And I think there's enough nods for us as Star Trek fans to still appreciate what we're getting and what we're seeing. And I know it might be an overused argument, but we're getting more Trek, and it started here. So that's pretty cool. If this movie CPR machine had not had the batteries that it needed, uh, i.e. the money it made and the the impact it had, we probably would never have gotten into darkness beyond Discovery Season 1, Discovery Season 2, Picard Show. Or Polytrex. Polytrex. That's right. We would never have had a Polytrex. But no, I'd like to think the universe would have found a way to connect us, Barry, because that's how much I love you. But the... The point of Star Trek 2009, I really think, was not to tell us a complex, uh, layered story about environmental activism, per se, with the voyage home or the intricacies of of politics and justice with something like The Undiscovered Country. But it, it actually was making a movie 
for the guy who goes and watches Fast and the Furious or whatever else was popular at this time, like the X-Men movies. And uh, I think MC was just starting out. But the people who go and enjoy all these action, fast-paced movies, to go and show them a movie that they could go back to again and again and just make an entertaining movie. I think last time they they tried something like that and they really succeeded with an attempt to make an action movie, but fill it with all these layers and uh, narrative threads and these... Uh, uh, the story about the hero's journey, it was Star Wars, uh, episode four, back in 1977. And again, when you listen to the commentary, J.J. Uh, Abrams talks about, you know, when uh, everything that happens with uh, Kirk happens, where he's just hanging out in a in a bar and he's, he's hitting on Ahura and then people come and beat him up and then Pike breaks that off and Kirk has napkins hanging out of his nose and he's bleeding. And then... Pike challenges him and says, hey, this is what your father did. Let's see what you can do. And then Kirk says, oh, I'm going to take you up on that dare. And then he arrives at where the ships are being held. And he's sitting on his bike and he's looking up at everything that's before him in that starships. That's the what J.J. Abrams says. That's their Luke looking at the two sons moment in Star Wars. It's Kirk realizing, oh, there is something bigger out there. And now I'm closer to being a part of it. And I feel like I found my calling. So, yeah, the movie succeeds on so many levels because it's kind of uh, taking a departure from that Star Trek we know. And it's 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 uh, it has it definitely has that hero's journey, but it also has the hero's remorse in uh, the Spock story it is telling because that guy, in spite of all its intelligence and uh, the the quick wit and the presence of mind and the intellectual power that he has, he still couldn't save his people. He couldn't save his own mother. And imagine what is going through a character like that. And they, they do show what happens to someone like that in the movie. But yeah, lo- lots of... And that's why I think the Kirk-Spock relationship works because there they're, are two different places and yet they have so many similarities because they're they're lost and they're kind of looking for places to belong to. That's really it. And to enjoy all of these different iterations of Star Trek also, I think, just makes it all the more meaningful for us. Because you're right, we can we can talk at these deep levels with stuff like Undiscovered Country, or um, you know, if we wanted to look at that, you know, stuff past tense, or let that be your last battlefield. You know, all of these different different deep kind of dark sort of stuff you know the drum head measure of a man far beyond the stars we've got we've got the we've got the the heavy stuff right i mean star trek is is like a as like a compilation of different music almost right that that holds the same maybe the same key or you know that that chord progression has always made its way through right that dun 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 it, it's iconic and it's going to change and it's going to ebb and it's going to cleave itself to the society that it lives in, right? Star Trek evolves and grows. It's, it's almost scientific in its evolution. And so this was a much needed adaptation that Star Trek took. And if you're unhappy with that adaptation, I mean, goodness, I need to talk to you about leftist politics because my 
goodness, there's a lot of people with a lot of thoughts on a lot of things and how it should be. And I guess it's theory and practice in some cases. And yeah, I mean, I would take an anti-capitalist approach to Star Trek and, and understand that I know that the movie I get is not the one that might have been on the mind of the writer originally, and that it has to put butts in seats and it needs to sell stuff that I personally buy as well, which I always refer to me being beset by my own contradictions. But Star Trek is going to change. It's going to ebb. It's going to flow. It's going to move in directions you don't like. It's going to have stuff in it that you're not going to like. But if you love Star Trek, then you can let these things happen from time to time. Because yeah, like the article that was I'd mentioned earlier, the, the, the franchise really doesn't owe you anything. Um, it's it's trying to maximize its profit in a lot of cases, but I really am happy that though profit maximization is there within Star Trek, we can still get this message of of equality, of peace, of equity, of doing the right thing for people, and that certain rights are just that, fundamental rights, right? No one wants for food in the world of Star Trek, and I don't think people could really want for food if we got our act together here on planet Earth. Um, health right you are hurt you're going to get fixed don't worry about it you don't have to buy a phone card to have in your car or anything like that right star trek has all these things provided for you and i think that's something that you and i talk about when we say star society that we strive for yeah and it's a the the movie itself talks a lot about when you kind of have everything what will you want to do next because uh, when Spock rejects uh, his Vulcan heritage in favor of becoming a Starfleet officer, he's kind of making a very human choice. It's logical for him to stay with his Vulcan people and continue his upbringing there. But he makes the emotional choice of, oh, they insulted my mother, so I'm not going to go do this. And then you compare that with someone like Kirk, who's basically a deadbeat at the start of the movie. Yeah. He probably has everything that he needs to survive because that's just the future we live in and yet he forces himself to want to belong to something and even if that means you know going into starfleet and trying to cheat the kobayashi maru and uh becoming a member there and just showing that he can do what pike asked of him when he made that challenge to him it's it's just there are so many different positions that all these people come from and i don't think that would have happened with a movie like star trek generations which is forced to tell this story it's kind of bound by the roddenberry rules of nobody on the crew can have a conflict nobody can fight with each other i don't think if gene roddenberry was alive they would have ever made star trek 2009 in the form it did because in the movie spock punches kirk in the face <laughs> at the midpoint of the movie it's the the movie hinges on spock giving in to his human side and punching like a child the guy who's being mean to him and bullying him on a, a bridge that would have never have happened in a roddenberry movie and yet the movie is better for it, uh, it because it forces you to look at this new perspective of this franchise that you love so much i'm one of those people who really likes that throughout the movie, Kirk never put, wears his gold uh, shirt. It's, he's basically in a, 
uh, whatever shirt is given to the people who have failed their Kobayashi Maru because they cheated and are now being called into question to, uh, you know, had had the Romulus had the uh, Romulan time traveler not arrived, he would have probably been expelled, and that would have been the end of Kirk as you knew it. And I kind of like those things, those little things that happen where Kirk and McCoy are friends and then they end up on the ship. And because Kirk has a piece of information about the the message that was transmitted, he finds Ahura of all the people on that ship who's working in some corner of that ship. And then all three of these people go to the bridge where Sulu and Spock and Chekhov are already working. And that's how this crew comes together. I kind of like that there is that that almost divine intervention of sorts to bring all these people together that you know are going to be together because that's the Star Trek you know. But the fact that they all come together this way is just one of the many cool, beautiful new things about this movie and the, the new perspective that it offers. I would call that Star Trek serendipity, right? The, that is the the very, very quiet, ever, ever present bit of spiritual spiritual force um, to, to, to cross franchises. But don't worry, JJ already did that. So we are inexorably linked, folks. Um, but the idea that that fate would still bring these people all together because that is what fate desires something greater than themselves brings them into the onto the bridge with each other even if yes in some cases they're they're going to start punching one another at the same time it's important to understand that the way this is written is it's telling us that no matter what happens no matter w- the way things change spock and kirk will be together the triad of Spock, Kirk, and McCoy will always be there. The look of the bridge with Ohura running communications when with uh, Mr. Sulu and Mr. Chekhov uh, at the con, and then Scotty shouting his lungs off in engineering. These things will never change. It is, it is, it is uh, the lore of Star Trek, and that that template has gone on further, and it's it's continuing today. Right? I mean. I would think that would be interesting to sort of see how each character on each bridge sort of mirror other characters to each other. And yeah, I think that Star Trek 2009 has a rightful place within the canon of of the Star Trek franchise itself. Hey, I really wanted to talk about this. The old man Spock that we meet, or the prime Spock for all the cool people, uh, I've always thought of him as, you know, of course he's the guy who comes in and kind of winks at Kirk about what he needs to do to win this situation. But really, if you think about it, he's at it. He's at the end or nearing the end of a very tragic a journey filled with failure, right? If you really think about what Spock has been through, he has been trying since everything that happened after uh, Star Trek VI to kind of lead this life of being an ambassador and try to bring the planet together. And it's mostly failure because he has been failing at every turn. Uh, and I would say that's in the eye of the beholder personally, but I see what you're saying is, is Spock's journey has never been one of, of resounding success after resounding excess. I mean, Spock has had to lick his wounds a number of times, but I don't know. I don't know if I would call it failure. And I guess my challenge on this isn't in a you're absolutely wrong sort of thing. I'm just sort of 
wedging my 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 thoughts on that as you as you continue to explain your point so continue sorry uh, no i and i get that i respect it i kind of think it's that way because he's in a in a weird way he's like a uh like if you think about it he's a united nations secretary general who is trying to keep the universe together by going on all these peace missions and trying to bring everybody uh to a place of equality and uh peace and uh, a way to tr- to try and maintain this intergalactic relationship but he's not a very successful un secretary general because he keeps he keeps not getting what he really needs to do to get to where he is for example uh again, i highly recommend people go read this but there is the countdown to star trek book which actually talks about what happens at the, from the end of where we see spark last to when we meet him in uh, in star trek uh, 2009 and it goes through the destruction of romulus and nero is one of the main characters and they show the relationship that these two people have and in this comic book spark and nero they actually go to the romulan people and they say hey your planet is about to die you need to get out of here and they say oh no we're fine leave us alone and then as they get closer and closer things happen and they all realize oh wait spock was right but they're too late and romulus gets crushed anyway and uh, nero holds spock accountable uh, and that's just how all of this begins but i i i get what you're saying uh, when you say oh yeah he wasn't met by success but i struggle to understand the just the sheer weight that spock was be carrying on himself when he meet him on that ice planet uh, in star trek 2009 because he realizes uh, again we were talking about avengers end game he's kind of where captain america is uh, because captain america in, in avengers end game says this is going to succeed when they go to get thanos because he says i don't know what i'm going to do if it doesn't and if you think about it if old man spock doesn't give time uh, the the young kirk that message to say hey you need to cheat to win this and if you don't do it the whole universe is at stake he's kind of at a place where he's like i don't know what i'm going to do if this doesn't happen maybe to riff on on what you said there in terms of the failures and stuff and and maybe to kind of unify our point Maybe Spock is exactly, again, serendipitously, exactly where he's supposed to be. Because now he can care for the remaining Vulcans and teach them the Vulcan way, the way he learned it. So maybe some of those conceits and and such that that, uh, Spock had to kind of wrestle through himself when he was in the Prime Universe can almost help the people or help people through the pain that they are now going through as victims of a horrifying genocide. And um, I think maybe to some degree he's in the, exactly where he needs to be. The, the universe pulled him in the direction that he had to go in. Maybe maybe a wormhole opened up and the prophets were like, um, we need you. And that's what the red matter wormhole really was, was maybe, maybe the prophets are at work again here. Who knows? I'm glad you bought a red matter. That's a metaphor for a nuclear bomb, right? Oh, 100%. I mean, that couldn't have been any uh, any less subtle. Yeah, and uh, the fact that uh, the it it hasn't really changed the way that that whole process goes because it's it's kind of like you're trying to ignite a chemical reaction 
to uh, start this huge black hole inducing event and it all happens from a little spark that you let go yeah that's i'm glad i'm glad somebody agrees with me on this i'm i'm surprised i've never really talked about it but that's definitely a metaphor for a uh, nuclear bomb and it's interesting that again this movie touches on holocaust genocide nuclear bombs people at the end of their roads because their peace missions failed and in the midst of all this you have characters okay let me ask you this what's your favorite scene from 2009 star trek give me a second oh boy is it okay if i tell you mine yeah go yeah you start my favorite scene from 2009 star trek is the bridge scene that kirk spock mccoy and pike are in because they're trying to figure out what that transmission means and what they should do next in the middle of this huge action movie that is supposed to sell tickets and popcorn and merchandise and ignite a whole new franchise for people to start coming and watching Star Trek movies because they're full of action that's a very Star Trek scene that could almost be in TNG or DS9 uh it could be on the bridge of the defiant or the bridge of the TNG enterprise because it's a uh, it's for very competent people having a very complex a deeply impactful conversation while the universe falls apart around them and it's like that's where you get to see the beginning of the kirk you know it's like oh that's kirk he the way he's maneuvering everything he's saying he's kind of almost doing it despite his young misgivings of being an angry young man who really doesn't know how to control his hormones uh in spite of that he's making a lot of sense and that's why pike says oh you're going with me uh and that's why he he gives them the mission he does when he leaves in, to go talk to nero because kirk proves himself despite all that is going on in that scene and that's that's just very much a conversation scene that we all love in star trek because that's kind of what uh we enjoy uh when when we watch star trek one of the things is people sitting around and pontificating about hey what does all this mean and how do we do it so that's just uh, it's weird that in an action movie in which so much happens that's my favorite scene i know I, i agree with that i would say my favorite scene is actually the first one it's the it's the main scene where um the uh, the the captain of the kelvin has to go and he has to speak to george kirk and and he's he's being he's being really real and there's the 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 real feel of uh, a starfleet and and the duty and how seriously they take things and how much dedication everyone has on that ship i don't know for whatever reason even though they're all getting destroyed and killed and stuff like that for whatever reason i felt very sold on a unified crew that they all seemed like they knew what they were doing um they were they were in their kobayashi maru and they were still all just doing exactly what they had to do in that moment like when george tells the uh, the 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 escape runabout pilot to take off and go he doesn't argue he just says yes sir he knows he knows what to do he knows what the greater good is trusts his cap his new captain he trusts and he knows his captain trusts him when he says you can go you leave without me 
there I don't know I just felt a lot of trust between between all of the the actors as they're as they're kind of working and yeah I mean this idea of a family being pulled apart by tragedy and yet the bravery that existed and the self-sacrifice of it all is uh, is something really big I think the other like the the runner-up for me and this is 100% just me being a complete and total nerd the effect of the Kelvinverse ships going into warp is my favorite when they're all kind of getting ready to go to Vulcan and they just pop, 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 pop. It's so cool. For whatever reason, I could just watch that on loop a thousand times over that initial ships going to warp thing. It's uh, for me, it just feels realistic and just so incredibly cool. So yeah, th- that would be my, my, uh, my two favorite scenes of the movie. And uh, it's very cool that in the midst of all these characters, you bring in someone like Scotty, who we haven't really talked about. He's kind of the human vehicle in this movie because all he wants is his good, delicious food that he hasn't eaten in years. He just wants to he just wants to have a, a good time while the universe falls apart. And the, I think that's another cool thing about the movie is unlike the typical, I'm giving her all she's got, Captain... Uh, that's a horrible impression of Scotty. Uh, when you, Better than I could do. <laughs> uh, when you compare that to this really, uh, not really angered, but frustrated, and uh, another character who's losing all patience, and he just wants, he just wants to just chill. He wants to relax because he's been through so much. When you bring a character like that, especially, uh, again, on the bridge, when Kirk is taunting Spock, Scotty says, oh, I don't want to have any part of this uh, because that's the, he's the human vehicle in this movie. The way they used the characters that we know will all end up together and the cool things they did around the universe to bring them all together, just such a such a cool, fascinating way to do it. What do you think of Scotty in the movie? Well, I think he's given a heck of a lot more to do than McCoy. I feel like McCoy is very much a passenger in the movie comparatively. Like he just, he's basically like the the medium that gets Kirk on the Enterprise, and then after that, he really doesn't have a hell of a lot to do after that. And I I would say that perhaps I'm I'm excited that Scotty gets like the comic relief. But I mean, Jimmy Doohan was great at at, at impersonating a, a, a sort of a, a surly Scottish officer, right? I mean, of course, Jimmy Doohan's a Canadian, but that's okay. You know, Simon Pegg does a good job with the humor, right? He he knows his trek. He is definitely a solid and strong Star Trek fan and supporter, as he is also with Star Wars. And I mean, if you ever want to watch some really great Simon Pegg stuff, I say go back to Spaced. It is so much fun to watch. But uh, yeah, I mean, Simon Pegg just just riffs, right? He just goes in and, and, and does his thing as Scotty. And I, I do, I enjoy it. I just, to kind of maybe do a bit of whataboutism, I would have liked to see a little bit more McCoy. I mean, hell, they give Sulu a sword fight. That's so cool. And then, I mean, Chekhov is a lot more active as well in this. He's, he's suddenly become very, very good at transporters, which I would have never expected. But um, overall, right, I mean... Yeah, McCoy, I would say, is is maybe the least utilized, but maybe that energy goes towards Uhura and it goes towards Scotty, and that's always fun. Again, when you, when you think about where these people are going, I'm kind of comforted because McCoy gets a lot more to do in Into Darkness. Yeah, no, he and, and actually also in uh, Beyond as well, McCoy gets a, a really good Spock um, interplay. Yeah, and it's kind of fitting that they we actually get to see that play out 
uh, as an interesting opposite to what we've we've known in the Ocean series. But uh, just to go back to something you're talking about, it's uh, uh, I'm really appreciative that the Asian on the show. Uh, I say show. I'm sorry. I'm really appreciative that the Asian in the movie got to play with a sword. That was that was kind of it hit me in the feels with that one, as the kids say. That that made sense to me, and that's very much Sulu's hero moment. Everybody, if you think about it, every person that we know as part of the Ojin series, uh, they get a hero moment. Like Ahura gets it when she translates the message. Uh, uh, Chekhov gets it when he successfully is able to transport some of the people. Uh, yeah, you know, Kirk gets his, Spock gets his, McCoy gets his when he finds a way to get Kirk on board the Enterprise. Just everybody has a moment where you see them and you go, oh, wait, that's because that's why I love that guy, because that's his thing. That's his moment. And it's the just a fascinating movie. Now, going back to some of the plot points, I, uh, I don't know how much more we really can talk about Nero and his people, but... Oh, I've got uh, something. Okay, hit me. But we're also we're also running like this is going to be like an hour and a half long episode. But that's I'm fine with it. I love it. That's I what love... people sign into Polytrex for, yeah, man. Yeah, we you break want, all you the want... rules. We're going to keep talking. We're the red matter of, of Star Trek podcasts. Yeah. We're just anyway. going to do whatever. We're like the enterprise of podcasts. We'll do whatever is needed to be done. Yeah, yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> uh, so I would say that. Um, that it's interesting that the entire crew of of the Narada follow the lead of of their captain, no matter how much uh, he is driven by his psychosis. I mean, the Romulans are a emotional and and you know somewhat reactive um, species of people, but at the same time, they do have the capability of reasoning and they are quite logical. And I, I do even feel like they have a certain a certain level of of gallows humor in the darkest times. I usually attribute that to uh, the Klingons, but I think with uh, with with Ayel especially. He, he he really does well to end Kirk's sort of abusive story. This is Kirk's. This is the first time Kirk really and truly fights back. Right, like he's getting his fingers stepped on, and he's saved by Sulu. Um, he gets Spock to freak out so that he can take command of the ship, but it costs him a pretty pretty bad beating. His interchange with people at that bar was, wasn't was good. And then, yes, he does fight back in those sorts of cases, but it's in this moment where you might overpower me, you might be able to pick me up with one hand, you might be able to beat me and, and smash me, but I'm James T. Kirk. I've always got an ace in the hole. I have always got something up my sleeve. So that moment where he says, you can't even talk. Tell me what? And then he just whispers, I've got your gun. And he just shoots him. I, for me, I was just, I always sort of have a little happy dance in my head because that sort of ends Kirk's arc, right? I mean, he still looks for father figure in darkness. And I think he's done doing that by, by beyond, but, um, no, that moment for me is is this moment of actualization. It's a Hegelian moment to some degree for for Kirk, and it is done in the most badass way. And of course, Kirk's a badass, so that's the way it's got to be, right? I, I feel like every scene, if you sit and really break it down, has this this connection and this deep impact that we as fans share. And it's partly because uh, Star Trek 
2009 did do some of the things that people were not fans of. I went back and read some of the reviews, especially from websites at the time that were very much Trek heavy. And not everybody that was a Trek fan enjoyed this movie. It was, uh, uh, even though it was a huge financial success, it was kind of divisive to some degree. Of course, it's not even close to the divisiveness that the better movie of the trilogy, Into Darkness, got. But <laughs> I, I don't know why I do that. Uh, just because it's my favorite, nobody else should feel uh, pressured into it. People like what they like. But uh, it was not as divisive as that movie. But there are people who are like, mm, I don't know if this is the way Star Trek should go. And yet, now we are with Discovery, which is much closer, at least in my opinion, to the Kelvin verse in the way it looks and feels and sounds than it does the original series. Of course, with season two and Pike coming in, I think that Pike is a lot closer to the original series Pike, and that sways it a little bit in a, another direction. But I feel like Discovery exists uh, very much in a universe that it has known uh, Star Trek from the uh, Kelvin trilogy. And it makes sense because Alex Kurtzman is one of the writers of Star Trek 2009. Well, it, I think, yeah, Discovery, if we really want to see its place, some people assert, well, no, it's definitely, it's Kelvin Trek, it's Kelvin Trek, that's it. Um, okay, I, I guess, like, that's all I would really say to anyone who would assert that, is is okay. Um, Star Trek Discovery is going to take a lot from a lot of different different iterations of Star Trek. It already has, right? I mean, you look at the the... the the version of this Enterprise, right? It's got a nod to TMP, it's got a nod to Enterprise, it's got a nod to TOS, obviously, and it has a nod to the Kelvin universe by having the the view screen that it does, right? The transparent view screen. Personally, I really dislike the transparent view screens. I didn't like them in Kelvin, and I don't I don't like them in Discovery. That is a that is an element that I just do not prefer. But it doesn't ruin anything. It doesn't take me out of the scene at all. It doesn't really do anything other than if someone, if I was on the CBS writing staff and they said, hey, view screens, I would say they should not be transparent. They shouldn't just be a, a windshield, right? They, they need to serve so many more functions and, and making them just a glass window is not a good idea. Um, but... I'm not one of those people, so it's okay. It, it's fine. I'll, I mean, I, we can debate that, and I will come with a principled and, and good-natured position about the whole thing. But, yeah, I think Discovery is going to have a lot of elements to it because it's really, really having to cast a pretty wide net, if you think about it. And it's a, the people who make that dumb argument about, oh, it belongs in the Prime Universe because that's a timeline, but it looks like Kelvin Trek. What is going on? I mean, if you're in a kitchen and you're trying to make dinner, do you really stand over the chef and say, you can't use that pepper because that's in a different cabinet. You can't use that spice mix because that's in a different cabinet. How dare you use this vegetable? I don't like that vegetable. So all these 10 other people that we're eating with can't eat it either. You can't be that unreasonable. And you kind of are losing yourselves from enjoying something. Uh, give things a chance and be understand that, you know, all these things are kind of bigger than you. And that's okay. Much like Kirk, 
you can't you can't just hit on a hura in a bar and expect life to be okay you have to find a place to belong and compromise and uh, become part of a bigger enterprise Oh, oh, that was sweet. Well, uh, I think we could talk forever and ever, but it is actually getting to my bedtime. So I am I am going to have to go pretty soon. Um, I don't know. Does, I wonder if this could almost get a second part to it, Shashank. But uh, I, I, I do. There's there's so much more I want to talk about. And so maybe maybe we take this onto the Twitter Twitterverse and aggressively push people talking to us about Star Trek. And heck, haters, those of you who are like, I hate this, it's the worst. Or uh, people who, who you know talk about the, the very hyper, hyper consumeristic nature of, of Star Trek now as well. I mean, these are all 100% real things that are really happening to this franchise. So let's let's keep this going. What do you think, Shashank? No, uh, I feel like, like you said, I we could talk about this movie forever, and I'm sure somewhere down the line we'll pick it up where we left off. But we just these are just some of our many thoughts. This is kind of more of an off-the-cuff polytrex of Star Trek that we wanted to do just to give uh, mainly talk about our experience with the movie, how it rekindled our love for Star Trek, and talk about some of the big things that happen in the movie. And I, I kind of feel like we did that with this episode. And uh, yeah, I would love to come back and pick it up if, if we really need to. If people want to start a conversation or tell us uh, how wrong we are or right we are or whether they agree or disagree, which I and you both really appreciate. We like people having conversations about uh, these things that we care about. They can reach out to us on at Polytrex on Twitter. That's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. They can also reach out to me personally if they want to. Twitter is about the only social media I do and my social media handle on Twitter is gutter underscore hero that's g-u-t-t-e-r underscore h-e-r-o what about you Barry where can people find you to tell you how wrong you are you can tell me uh, how wrong I am anywhere you want. Uh, the best place to do it is on uh, on a sticky note, and you can just put that right on your fridge. Um, outside <laughs> of that, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Bjorn Defjord, B-J-O-R-N-D-E-F-J-O-R-D. On Twitter, you're going to get a lot of Star Trek, and you're going to get a lot of left-wing politics, and maybe the, the occasional picture of a crow. Um, so I, I find it's funny because uh, when I get something happens sort of on left Twitter, I, I accumulate people who I talk to a bit and then they find out that I'm into like a very, you know, obviously capitalistic franchise like Star Trek and then um, they sort of leave and then I have Star Trek fans come along and then I make some some posts about like Marxism-Leninism and they're like, oh my god! <laughs> so it's, it is sort of a funny world I live in. Um, but yeah, check me out on Twitter. It's always fun to chat with people. Uh, you can do that there. You can also find us... Um, on Facebook as well at Politrex, though I will admit I don't hit that as often. I am the manager on that one, and Facebook is mostly something I use to keep in communication with family. So Twitter is definitely the place to find us. You can also check out the Tricorder Transmissions. And if you are interested in any more Star Trek delightfulness, you can always check out our friends uh, Stuart and Thad on uh, Delta Flyer. They're going to be coming back really, really soon. And of course, we can also check out our buddies Dan and Bill on the Trek Geeks podcast as well. So uh, I say with that, we would uh, hope everyone enjoys themselves another viewing of 2009 Trek and that they live long and prosper. And onward to Star Siding. <laughs>